we open the scriptures to Titus chapter 2. We'll read the entire chapter, Titus chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Thus far, we read in the sacred scriptures, on the foundation of this passage and the entirety of God's word, we have the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism. We are up to Lord's Day 32. I'm going to preach two sermons on this Lord's Day. And so today, we're just going to read question and answer 86. Since then, we are delivered from our misery, merely of grace, through Christ, without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. That so, we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Beloved in the Lord, as you look at Lord's Day 32, you see the heading in all capital letters, the third part of thankfulness, and that reminds us 
of the overarching organization of the Heidelberg Catechism, which undoubtedly is familiar to us. An overarching organization of the Lord's Days, which makes a crucial theological point. Going all the way back to Lord's Day 1, the second question and answer, we were instructed in the fact that there are three fundamental things that the Christian must know to live and die happily. The three component parts of true saving knowledge. The Heidelberg Catechism students know those things very well. Guilt, grace, gratitude. How great my sins and miseries are, how I may be delivered from my sins and miseries, and how I am to show gratitude to God for my deliverance. That is the sum total of the Christian faith, the sum of saving knowledge as revealed in the Scriptures. And so a way that we can think about our Heidelberg Catechism, which is a summary of the teaching of Scripture, is the Catechism is like a a beautiful building or a beautiful house with three main rooms. The small room that is the entrance to the house is the small first section of the catechism which explains to us our sins and our guilt and the punishment that our sins deserve. But very quickly we pass from that first room of the house into the wide and beautiful central room of the catechism. The room called deliverance through Jesus Christ. And in that room we have looked at and marveled at all of the facets of Jesus' saving work as summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And now we are passing from that room deliverance into the final room of this beautiful house, which is entitled thankfulness, or the Christian life. And in this third room, we are going to have explained to us the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer for the two main parts of thankfulness. The Christian's life of gratitude unto God for gracious salvation in Christ is obedience to the law and a life of prayer and worship. That's the last section, the third room that we are entering into today. And Lord's Day 32 functions as the door between the second room and the third room. Functions as a connection between the two fundamental concepts. The concept of salvation in Christ and the concept of the Christian's life of gratitude. And what Lord's Day 32 does is it explains that connection. It explains why salvation by grace alone through Christ alone without any merit of ours necessarily entails a renewed Christian life of gratitude and zeal for good works. And thus Lord's Day 2 makes a crucial point based squarely upon Scripture that salvation by grace alone does not diminish the importance, the necessity, the beauty, or the profit of a life of godliness, but rather salvation by grace alone establishes it, is the foundation of it, is the reason for it. So much so that those who confess grace and salvation by grace alone in Christ alone ought to be the people who are most zealous for godliness and good works. And if we are not, That is symptomatic of a serious spiritual sickness in us. If we are not, it is a symptom of the fact that we do not esteem and we do not understand grace. Grace begets godliness. Salvation 
in Christ leads to a life of gratitude. And that's the overarching idea that I want to look at closely over the course of two sermons. This morning, we're going to focus really on one phrase in question and answer 86. And this is the opening line of answer 86, which is foundational for all of the teaching in this Lord's Day. We're going to look at this phrase. Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by His blood, also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. And the reason that phrase is so important is it points out to us the connection between the second room and the third room. Between salvation in Christ and life. It draws out the important connection between the redemptive work that Christ performed in his state of humiliation, climaxing in his death on the cross, the connection between that and the saving work that he yet performs in his state of exaltation through the operation of his spirit in the heart and life of his believing people. And when we understand this connection between redemption and renewal, the answer to the question, why must we do good works, becomes so very plain. So very plain. So let's focus our attention on this important biblical teaching this morning. Redemption and renewal. Both are parts of the full salvation that God accomplishes us for us in Christ. Christ is the only Savior, and He works a full salvation. Christ is a complete Savior, which means He saves completely. A full salvation, that's our theme. Two points. First, we're going to look at redemption by the blood. And then secondly, renewal by the Spirit. And again, our focus this morning is on seeing the beautiful connection between the two. A full salvation. Redemption by the blood. Renewal by the Spirit. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Jesus, whom the angel said to Joseph, would come to save his people from their sins. And Jesus completely saves us from our sins, as the Catechism points out, by redeeming us with his blood and renewing us by his spirit. But now we focus on the first part. He redeems us with his blood. What does it mean to redeem? Well, a simple way to remember the concept of redemption is this. Redemption is buying back from bondage. Buying back from bondage. An illustration to help us understand this concept. Picture in your mind a prisoner of war who is taken captive by an invading enemy. And that invading enemy army captures him, chains him, and drags him back to the invader's homeland and puts him in the estate of the cruel warlord who led that raiding party 
And this prisoner of war now becomes a menial slave on that man's estate, bound with chains, put under backbreaking labor, oppressed, mistreated by his tyrant master. He's in bondage, and in bondage he is in abject misery, and in that bondage he is helpless to help himself, helpless to better his condition. That illustrates for us the human condition after the fall. Satan, the author of evil, invaded God's realm of creation and assaulted God's image bearers with lies and with temptation. But unlike the illustration, our first parents Adam and Eve were not dragged unwillingly into Satan's fellowship, but our first parents knowingly rebelled and disobeyed against God, their king, and made a pact with Satan. They willfully made themselves his prisoners in great folly, believing his lies. And as soon as Satan had his claws in them, he subjected them to the height of misery. The fall of our first parents brought man into the total depravity of his nature. The fall of man locked man's will in chains. Again, unlike the illustration, man himself is responsible for his own captivity. He is a captive by his own choice and willful fall. And therefore, the fall of Adam and Eve made them and all their posterity liable to punishment according to the just law of God the King, to whom they were beholden to serve and to love with all their hearts, souls, mind, strength. That's the miserable bondage in which every single human being is born. That's the bondage we are in naturally unless grace frees us from that bondage. And so we see the first and fundamental part of any work of salvation must be redemption from that bondage. Buying back from bondage. And so go back to the illustration. Imagine now that that prisoner of war is toiling away and wasting away on his cruel master's estate. But then one day, his king, his king from his homeland that he thought he'd never see again, comes to rescue him. He storms the captor's estate and at great personal cost and great personal risk, he rescues this prisoner of war and brings him back to his homeland and restores that prisoner to his family and to his property. There's redemption. But here again, the illustration falls short. Yes, Christ redeems by storming the captor's stronghold. Christ came into the world to destroy the power of the devil. To set at liberty the devil's captives. Christ came as a conquering king far greater than his human ancestor David. But the key difference is this. Christ redeems By buying us back from bondage. He pays a price for our liberation. He pays a price to transfer us, his people, from Satan's legal possession to his own legal possession. To remove us from Satan's tyrannical lordship. And to bring us into the embrace of his own benevolent and gracious lordship. 
And Christ the Redeemer doesn't pay this price to the captor. He doesn't pay this price to the devil. But he, pray, or he pays this price to the just judge. Under whose sentence we as fallen people deserve to perish. This price, this payment is rendered to the judge to satisfy the demands of his law such that we may be legally liberated from the bondage into which we have plunged ourselves by our own sin. Redemption by the blood. The redemption of fallen elect people is accomplished by the blood. The Redeemer buys us back. He purchases us for Himself. He liberates us from our bondage by the shedding of His own blood, which is the price of our redemption. A price paid not to our captor, but a price paid to the just judge who must uphold justice against the sinner. Redemption by the blood, not with silver or gold or any other valuable thing. For you see, in a certain sense, Satan has a legal hold over fallen humanity. Satan is the instigator of the fall. Satan deserves and will receive eternal condemnation. But man willfully gave ear to the devil and made a pact with the devil when he fell. And from a certain point of view then, man is the devil's legal captive. In order to liberate a sinner from the power of the devil and from the death sentence that the just law of God prescribes for the sinner, in order to liberate such a man... Justice must be satisfied. A payment must be made that satisfies the demands of God's law so that the perfect judge, the just one, may liberate that captive without compromising his own righteousness, which is impossible. For the God who is the Holy One can never act contrary to the holiness and the righteousness of his own being. And the only price of redemption, the only payment that meets the demands of the just law of God is the precious blood of Christ. We understand why that is because we remember the instruction near the beginning of the catechism in Lord's Day 6. Why Jesus and Jesus alone can be this mediator, this savior He must be fully God that He has power to sustain the wrath of God against our sins. But He must be fully human because the same human nature which sinned must pay for sin. God's justice will not punish some other creature for human sin. But Jesus must also be a perfectly righteous man for a sinner cannot pay for the sins of other sinners. Christ alone. God in the flesh. Shedding His blood for His people. That precious blood of Christ upon the cross alone is the price of redemption. We are redeemed. 
set at liberty by the blood of Christ. Titus 2, the end of the chapter, sets that forth in beautiful terms. Beautiful terms. Verse 14. Who gave Himself. That relative pronoun who goes back to the last words of verse 13. Our Savior Jesus Christ gave Himself for us that He might redeem us, buy us back from all iniquity. That He gave Himself means that He gave His life for us. He poured out His soul unto death for us to pay for our sins. That's the shedding of His blood. His blood stands for His substitutionary atoning sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary. The shedding of His blood as that perfect sacrifice wipes away the guilt of our sin. It expunges our liability to suffer the just penalty of death that the law prescribes. Eternal death. The shedding of Christ's blood wipes away our guilt and sets us at liberty. It removes the devil's claim over us. It breaks the stranglehold of sin upon us. And thus the catechism goes on to explain that the effect of redemption by the blood is deliverance. We are redeemed and delivered. Delivered by Christ's blood. Thus Colossians 1 verse 14 says, In whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Romans 3.15, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse For us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth. Upon. A tree. By the shedding of his blood. He buys us back. He buys us back. And releases us from that bondage. The wiping away of our guilt. Lifts that crushing burden. From our shoulders. The burden of our sin and the just judgment that sin deserves. The shedding of His blood delivers us from punishment, from hell itself. It shatters our shackles. Breaks that tie that bound us to Satan and would drag us into the depths of perdition. That redemptive work of Christ by the blood makes us His. So that we belong to Him. Body and soul. In life and in death. Him. Our faithful Savior. His redemptive work of shedding His blood and paying for our sins redeems us. But that same redemptive work of the shedding of His blood also purchases for us 
all of the blessings of salvation. Question and answer 86 reminds us of that fundamental teaching of the Bible that all of salvation is not of our own merit. There's not a single particle of it that we have earned for ourselves. But rather every single part of our salvation, every particle of every blessing of God has been earned, has been merited, has been purchased and obtained for us by the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. His blood, that payment for our sins, earned all of salvation for us. So that on account of our redemption by the blood of Christ, we are not only liberated, but we now have the charter of eternal life. We are constituted heirs of life everlasting. Indeed, we now have a legal right through Christ, to those blessings of salvation. A right to be God's children and heirs, to live forever not on the tyrant's estate, but in the kingdom of heaven and in the house and glorious estate of the just judge who through Christ now has become our heavenly Father. Redeemed by the blood. The blood that bought us. The blood that covers us. The blood that bought for us. Every blessing. A couple of applications now of this truth. Number one. Let us see that redemption by the blood is the foundation, the meritorious ground of all our salvation. In a moment, we're going to move on to another important part of salvation. Renewal by the Spirit. But there can be no renewal by the Spirit. That second fundamental part of salvation cannot come unless this foundation first is laid. Everything else is built upon this foundation of redemption by the blood. Of Christ's work upon the cross. Paying for our sins. Satisfying justice. Rendering unto God perfect obedience that meets every demand of the law. That is first. That is foundational. That is the rock upon which the house of salvation is built. The Bible sometimes pictures the redeemed church as a spiritual house. And you can think about it that way. A spiritual house. And each member, each elect child of God, is a lively stone quarried out of this world, shaped by God's hand and fit into place in that spiritual house. But there can be no spiritual house unless there is the foundation, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Everything is based upon redemption by the blood. And so in the second place, that leads us to start looking at the very important connection between the first point and the second point that we get to in a moment. Between redemption and renewal. To fully appreciate 
the wonderful grace of God. We want to have a a full-orbed biblical understanding of salvation. And this means that we recognize that Jesus performs His saving work both in His state of humiliation and in His state of exaltation. And what He does in the state of humiliation lays the foundation for and aims at what He continues to do in the state of exaltation. You remember the meaning of those two theological terms. The state of humiliation is a term we use to describe Jesus' entire earthly life and ministry from His virgin conception and lowly birth all the way to his death upon the cross, his descent into hell, and his burial. The state of humiliation refers to the Son of God in our flesh, shouldering our guilt. He comes as our sin-bearing, suffering Savior. And it is in the state of humiliation that he redeems us by his blood, that he suffers and dies for us. At the end of the state of humiliation, Jesus said, it is finished. And when Jesus said that on the cross, what he was saying is that the work of paying for our sins, the work of atonement, the work of redemption, the work of meriting and obtaining for us all spiritual blessings, that work was perfectly finished. So much so that we say, salvation accomplished. The work is done. But we must recognize for the sake of having a full-orbed understanding of salvation, that when Jesus says, said, it is finished on the cross, He was not saying, there's nothing more that I'm going to do. The finished work of the state of humiliation, suffering and dying to redeem us by His blood, lays the foundation for and aims at the very real work that Jesus now is going to do For the rest of the New Testament age, in his state of exaltation, his state of glory, applying unto us all of the blessings he merited on the cross. The resurrection, the ascension, his session at God's right hand, his second coming again, those are just as much saving works of Christ as everything in the state of humiliation. We are redeemed by the blood in order that the ascended Christ by His Spirit may renew us day by day until the appointed time when that renewing work is finished. And that brings us to the second point this morning. A full salvation. A full and complete salvation. That's what Jesus Christ accomplishes for us. Redemption that liberates us from the power of sin and from the devil and clears our guilt and earns for us all blessings. But salvation doesn't stop there. Necessarily following from redemption comes renewal by the Spirit. Renewal by the Spirit. What is that renewal? Well, we understand the idea of the word renew. To renew is to refashion, to refresh, to renovate, to restore something. The idea is this. By His Holy Spirit, 
Jesus spiritually renovates, spiritually restores, spiritually rebuilds, spiritually recreates, spiritually refashions us from the inside out. The Catechism explains it this way, renewing us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. And the image of God we understand from Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10 is true knowledge of God, true righteousness, and true holiness. And so renewing or renewal refers to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit beginning at our regeneration and continuing all the way to the day of our death. That also is Christ's saving work. His redemptive work in the state of humiliation is a work that he performs outside of us, for us, on our behalf. His work in the state of exaltation by his spirit, his work of renewing us after his image, is a work that he performs inside of us by the spirit that he sends to dwell in us. It is a spiritually recreative work whereby we are refashioned to use the language of 2 Corinthians 5.17, into new creatures. So that more and more the old, my old desires, my old sins, my old thought patterns, my old feelings, all that was old about me passes away and more and more I become new and walk in newness of life in harmony with the will of God My Father. The washing away of our guilt by the blood of Christ. Merits for us. And secures for us. And lays the foundation. For the Spirit's inward work now. Of purifying. And sanctifying. And washing away the pollution. Of our sin. And this is a crucial point to see. Salvation does not only consist of redemption and deliverance from guilt, bondage, and punishment. But salvation also consists of the inward spiritual renewal carried out by the Holy Spirit. Conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. Yes, the chief blessing of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. That's the blessing that gives us comfort. That's the rock upon which the Christian life is built. The heart of the gospel is that God justifies His people freely by His grace, imputes to them the perfect righteousness of Christ. But forgiveness and justification aim at Christ's work of renewing. Those whom he justifies, he also sanctifies. And there is a God-established connection between those two. And you cannot break them apart. The Holy Spirit is sent to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit who is the comforter. The Spirit of truth. The sanctifier. Just think about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit's work, His operation. He is the Holy Spirit. The consecrator. 
Is there anything more absurd than to think that the Holy Spirit, the consecrator, dwells in someone but does nothing in that person, but leaves them in their state of corruption and pollution? No, the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes us His temple. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave His temple a filthy mess. But he consecrates that temple more and more in holiness to God. The Holy Spirit's work, his saving work, as the Spirit of Christ is to take those who are redeemed by the blood and form Christ in them. Conform them to Christ. That is to fashion a new Christ-like character in them and make them more and more to be living Images of Jesus. That is a fundamental part of salvation. That is what redemption aims at. We are liberated by the blood. In order that now belonging to Jesus. Jesus may work in us by his spirit. And give us life. New life. Jesus does not redeem us. So that we can stay spiritually dead. Doing nothing. He redeems us. That his spirit may indwell us. And through the operation of that spirit. We might more and more. Each day of our lives. Be conformed to his image. Until that one great work of salvation. Which is all his work. Is finished. That's why Philippians 1 verse 6 says, being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Redemption by the blood. Renewal by the spirit. Are two sides of the same coin called salvation. And we must not diminish the importance of either. Yes, we must keep them in their proper relationship. Very important. Redemption by the blood is the foundation of renewal by the Spirit. Justification is always before and the legal foundation for sanctification. Sanctification and the fruits of sanctification don't go back and become part of the reason why we are justified. Keep them in their proper order and place. But also never devalue either of them. That leads to a couple of applications of this second part of God's work of salvation. First, see the unbreakable connection between these two. Between redemption by the blood and renewal by the Spirit. Again, Titus 2.14 Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Not period. Not period. Alright, that's all of salvation. It stops there. Our guilt is cleared. We're freed from punishment. We're covered by the blood. And now there's nothing more that happens. Nothing more that has anything to say about how we live. No. The word of God has comma. 
and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There's renewal by the Spirit. Redemption lays the foundation for and aims at renewal by the Spirit. And the fruit and effect of that renewal by the Spirit is that we, who were dead sinners, who were lost in our bondage, now that we have been bought back and redeemed and renewed, now we become a people who are renewed from the inside out and who are zealous for good works. The idea of that is we hunger and thirst after righteousness. But that hunger and thirst after righteousness isn't a passive lazy boy hunger and thirst where I sit in my spiritual lazy boy and I just am hungry but I do nothing. It's a zeal that is active, that seeks, that strives. That shows itself in love for God and love for the neighbor in service of my neighbor and fellow member of the church in a life That I intentionally, by the power of the Spirit, conform to the image of Christ. Redemption and renewal in their proper relationship held together. That's full salvation. That's a full-orbed view of salvation that is going to lead to a fully beautiful And God glorifying Christian life. There's a danger. Sometimes this happens. Where one side of the salvation coin gets all the emphasis. So much so that people start to think it's a little bit suspicious if you talk too much about the other side of the coin. And that's unbiblical thinking. Actually that ends up slighting the grace of God. We're not satisfied with half. We want the whole. The whole of the full salvation wrought for us by Christ, the only and complete Savior. Redemption and renewal. And that then makes plain, doesn't it, the answer to the question, why good works? Why do Christians have to do good works? Why should a Christian want to do good works? Because I have been redeemed. I have been redeemed from my old bondage and the filth of my sins. And being redeemed, I don't want to go back and throw myself into that pigsty again. And more than that, I am being renewed. The Spirit is at work in me. And I yearn and I want to walk in that newness of life. That's that's the subjective point of view. That's how we should think. But objectively, objectively the Christian must walk in good works because the grace of God, the renewing work of the Spirit in the life of the child of God cannot be unfruitful. Good works of love, of service, of worship. Those are the fruits of the Spirit's renewing operation in my life. I must walk in them. Because the Spirit works them in me. Now when we say the Spirit works them in me, we mustn't be thinking that He works in such a way that I'm unconscious and they just pop out of me without me thinking about it. Never does the Bible present it that way. Because we're not rocks. We're not trees. 
We're not the sun that just beams light out of itself without thinking. We are moral, rational creatures. We are children of God, called out of darkness into His marvelous light, into His fellowship. And the way that God is pleased to renew us is that He works in such a way that we are conscious and active in the bearing of those fruits. We are not generators who just pump out electricity. But we are children of God who by the power of the Spirit love our Father and want to serve Him and show our thankfulness to Him. And so while theologically good works are in an in inevitability, they are necessary because God's grace cannot be unfruitful in us. From our point of view, we simply say, yes, they're necessary because I want to. I want to. And I give myself wholeheartedly to living a new life for the glory of God By His grace, I am zealous of good works. And now I want to adorn His gospel with that sort of life. I want my words not only, but my entire being, my entire walk of life, my whole conduct to be a doxology of praise to Him. A full salvation that leads to a full Christian life to the glory of God. Nothing should be farther from the Christian heart and mind than the thought. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed by the blood. And so how I live, eh, not such a big deal. If I keep walking in that sin, fine. Grace covers it. That's a slight to the grace of God. That's ingratitude. To the Redeemer. That's saying, yeah, thanks for redemption, but I'm going to dive headlong right back into bondage. Nothing should be farther from the Christian's heart and mind, but rather the heartbeat of the Christian should be what we read here in Titus 2.14. I'm redeemed, I'm purified, and now I'm zealous. Zealous. To be Christ-like in all my conduct. He has saved me fully. Now I want to glorify Him fully. That is with all that I am. And all that I have. And all that I do. And all that I say. For Him. Back to Lord's Day 1. He makes me. Sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. So beloved, the theology that we've gone through in the first statement of question and answer 86, let us not leave this morning thinking it's a dry theological distinction, but let us see that understanding the relationship of redemption and renewal helps us appreciate the fullness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And what a motive. How it should stir us with zeal now to go forward and live that fully Christian life. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Bless this particular word to our hearts. May it encourage us and comfort us as we contemplate the wonder of redemption. 
We thank Thee for our redemption by the blood. And we thank Thee for the renewal of the Spirit, which is ours on account of that redemption. Continue to sanctify us by the Spirit. And create in us, Father, hearts that are zealous for holy living and good works. May our whole life be a living sacrifice of thanks for Christ. Amen.